0: Starting at verse 47, hear the word of the Lord. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And uh, he came to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus uh, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets Might be fulfilled, then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you've given us minds to study your word. You've given us a community in which to discuss and live out your word. But we pray uh, that you would send your Holy Spirit enlighten our minds to understand your word and that you would apply this text, this passage to our lives and to our community so we might understand you and understand ourselves and understand our world. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. So we are in a series looking at the final chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, the last three chapters from now uh, up and through Easter. And what we're doing in these, uh, last, in these chapters that tell the climactic ending of Jesus' ministry where he goes and he dies on the cross, and then, surprisingly, God vindicates Jesus by raising him from the dead. It's the ending of the story. We're looking at these, these final days, up into his, a couple days up to his resurrection, and we're asking the question... What is the meaning of the cross? And we, we all know that's central to Christianity, is that Jesus died on the cross. But what does it mean? What's it about? And each passage we're looking at for, over the next few months is looking at a different meaning of the cross. It turns out that there's layer upon layer upon layer of meaning. And this week, the meaning that we're looking at, the topic that we're looking at, is the topic of nonviolence. That um, uh, you can see in this passage... Violence is one of the main themes. This is, the scene here is when Jesus is arrested. He's betrayed by one of his disciples, uh, Judas. And you can see uh, the scene is filled with weapons, right? Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs. And then the second half of verse 50 there, it says, Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then in verse 55, it says, At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? The whole scene is an act of violence against Jesus, the Lord of love. And Jesus, facing human violence responds with these profound words. This is what you caught that there in verse 52. It says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? This tells us that Jesus has a power to destroy his enemies. He has armies of angels that he could destroy his enemies. Except that's not the story that the scriptures are telling. The story that he is that is unfolding through him, that's not what his kingdom is about, the kingdom that he is building. Now, I think for most people, you know, when we think about who Jesus is, we think of him as kind of this wide wise sage who lived sometime back in history. And you know, I'm not sure whether he walked, he maybe just floated along the, the ground and he had nice hair and he had these pithy sayings that you could put on Hallmark cards about how to be a good person and, you know, how to go to heaven when you die, to go away from this place after you die. And I don't think that we realize that Jesus was starting a revolution. That's what the gospel is about. It is about a revolution And a revolution is an uprising in which a kingdom is being toppled and a new leader is being set in place. And every kingdom in this world has been built on violence. And you know the Roman Empire—that they were the masters of crucifixion, crucifying people. What the, the cross was used for was that whenever there was an uprising, you know, a revolt in the Roman Empire, they would take the leader of the of that revolt and they would crucify him publicly. And this is how they maintain their power. And the amazing irony is that God says, my king also rules through the cross. But instead of taking his enemies and crucifying them, he's crucified for his enemies. And he transforms them through his love. And he is taking over the world. He is taking over nations and kingdoms through this love and through this cross. His kingdom. So when Jesus says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world, it doesn't mean that his kingdom is about some other place and it's not about the earth. Because Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants his kingdom here. My kingdom is not of this world means that my kingdom is not like any of the kingdoms of this world. It is a kingdom that grows through nonviolence. And so this morning I want to show you from this passage that uh, nonviolence for Jesus, it was not just some kind of liberal, sentimental idealism, nonviolence is the deep reality of the world and story that we are all living in. And it is the heart of the revolution that we have all become a part of. And so this morning, I want to look at this passage under these three headings. The first, nonviolence brings light. Nonviolence exposes the violence in humanity, the evil that is in humanity, that can only be seen clearly through nonviolence, and the cross is the heart of that nonviolence. Second thing is that nonviolence leads to a revolution. And the third thing is that nonviolence looks to God's violence. It's an, it's an important part of understanding the Bible that might surprise some of you. God's violence is essential for us to understand our own nonviolence. And so we'll explain that as we get get to it. So first point this morning, nonviolence brings light. Nonviolence exposes violence and evil in our own individual lives and it also in our society as a whole. And the reason that's important, the first reason why that's important is because violence always lives in the darkness. Violence is always hidden. You know, this whole scene... Uh, uh, this passage where these crowds come around Jesus, and he says there in the end, verse 55 again, I already read this, but he says, at that hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? And then he says this, day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Jesus says, listen, I've been rebuking you in the temple and telling you about your sin in the temple all week long. I was out in public and you never touched me. And now it's nighttime, and I'm, you know, I'm in, this, in the garden, and I'm alone. And in secret, that's when you do your act of violence, because violence always happens in the darkness. It always likes to stay in the darkness. And um, humans, we are blind to our own violence. And the reason we are blind to it is because we are always telling ourselves that we are in the right to be violent, that we've been mistreated, and that the people were being violent who deserved it. It's an act of justice. So, you know, for example, you know, if a husband is intimidating or aggressive, I mean, oftentimes he would say, you know, I've been being mistreated, I've been being manipulated, I'm not being understood. And the reason I have to act this way in order to get control because it's a matter of justice. And that's why I'm allowed to do it is because it's a, a, a matter of justice. And so we are blind to it. We cannot see our own violence because we are, think we are doing the right thing. Right? And so as a result, because we are blind, because we are in the darkness, violence is always perpetual. It is a cycle that uh, begins to accelerate. So for example, you know, in many parts of the world, you might have two warring tribes that hate each other. And Someone from one tribe kills the son of a family in the other tribe. And so that family says, we need to get justice. And so how do they get justice? They kill the family of the murderer in the other. And so all of a sudden, they've accelerated the violence. There's even more violence. And then that tribe says, they killed this whole family. We're going to go burn their village. And all of a sudden, there's an escalating of the violence in this perpetual cycle. And it's always done in the name of justice. I think that's probably true with Judas. You know, Judas is here betraying his friend. Why is Judas betraying Jesus? I mean, probably the best answer is that he thought Jesus was starting a revolt against the Romans. He was forming an army. You know, when Jesus was out in the wilderness with 5,000 men feeding them? That's what you do to start an army. And then it turns out Jesus isn't going to fight anyone. He's not taking up the sword. And all of a sudden he says, my people are being oppressed by the Romans. We need to fight them. And so it's in the name of justice that he's betraying Jesus. And so the reason we are blind to our violence is because we are always violent in the name of justice, which means that what violence needs is not a response of violence. Violence needs light. Violence needs to be exposed. And the shame of it needs to be brought into the light. And what nonviolence does is nonviolence exposes the violence of our world and brings it into the light so it can stop the cycle. And, you know, I was reading this last week, uh, Martin Luther King's famous letter from Birmingham jail when, you know, he's in prison in the summer of 1963. And, uh, and, you know, in that letter, he talks about how, you know, many people, actually many Christians, criticize him and say, you know, your, your protests, these nonviolent protests that are disrupting society, where you're speaking out against segregation. They say, listen, we know segregation wrong. But you just need to be more patient and, you know, it'll eventually go away. And this is what King says. I'm going to read to you. This is a little longer section of that letter. But it's powerful. This is what he says. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait... But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes, little eyes, when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky. See her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking an agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by the nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are and your last name becomes John, and when your wife and mother are never given the respected title Misses when you were harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. What King is saying is, was saying, that violence woven into our society, the only way for all of this violence to be exposed, to brought into the light for people to just even see it, is through nonviolence. Because violence would have justified all this violence. And so what he says in the letter, actually, they would have these workshops with all the protesters and say the biggest thing they need to be prepared for is you're going to be beaten, you're going to be put in prison. Are you ready for that? because we are going to love our enemies. That is the whole purpose of this mission. And by the way, the Civil Rights Movement was largely a religious revival. It was a turn towards Jesus, the God of the cross, who was winning the world through nonviolence. And so what nonviolence is, is making a public display, exposing, revealing the wickedness of humanity. And this is precisely what Jesus' cross has done. The cross shows us The violence of humanity. It shows us our nature. And you know, there's a passage in Colossians uh, talking about the meaning of the cross. Very interesting. I want to read this. This is from Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15. This is what it says It says, God canceled the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he says this interesting line He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. What Paul is saying is that Jesus, through the cross, the cross was the power of the rulers and authorities, the demonic powers that possessed the oppressive nations of the world that were oppressing the weak. And the cross was their power. And they use that to shame people and make a public display of them. And so, you know, for example, during the Jewish wars of the first century, you'd have whole highways that were lined with Jews who'd been crucified by the Romans, who were revolting against the Romans. And now all of a sudden, God takes this symbol, and when he crucifies his king is crucified. He's making a public display to the world that God stands with the victims, the innocent victims and the oppressed and the weak. God stands with them, and God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. The power of God was with the crucified one. And he is showing the world this is the sin of humanity. This is the ugliness of humanity. This is the violence of humanity. We don't know that about ourselves until we look at the cross. And so therefore the cross is the only thing that has the power to stop the cycle of violence in the world. Now, many people say that, you know, nonviolence is a romantic idea. But it's not realistic. You know, there are cold, hard realities about the world that demand violence. And in part, I would say you're right. The Bible is, is not a pacifist uh, book. You know, it says that God gave the sword to the, to the state to punish, punish evildoers. But the kingdom of God is explicitly nonviolent. And this leads to the second point I want to say. It's not only that nonviolence brings light. A responsive nonviolence exposes the violence of the world. Second, nonviolence leads to a revolution. And the gospel that we're reading, the, you know, this statement, uh, the gospel of Matthew, is an announcement of the beginning of a revolution. So, that, you know, when we say we believe that Jesus is Lord, to be a Christian means that you profess that Jesus is Lord. Uh, what that means. The early readers of the New Testament would have heard Jesus is Lord as not just saying, you know, that's a spiritual thing about my personal spiritual life. That's kind of my personal religion. That's not how they would have understood that. They would have understood Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. It is a challenge to the, the oppressive Uh, political powers of their day, and they're saying our allegiance is not to Rome, our allegiance is to the kingdom of God and to Jesus. And so believing in Jesus is not a private spiritual loyalty, it is a political allegiance. And that's why even in this day, why are governments so concerned about Christian movements that are emerging in their nations, whether that's in China or in Russia or in Afghanistan? Earthly governments know that there's a counter- Kingdom that is growing and that has power, and it's not like their kingdom. And uh, you might think that that sounds over the top, but let me, I have one more Martin Luther King quote. If you turn to page three in your bulletin, this is from King's uh, book, The Strength to Love, which is a collection of sermons that he gave on the love of Christ. This is what he says Love is the most durable power in the world. This creative force, so beautifully exemplified in the life of our Christ, is the most potent instrument available in mankind's quest for peace and security. Napoleon Bonaparte, the great military genius, looking back over the years of his conquest, is reported to have said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have built great empires. But upon what did they depend? They depended on force. But centuries ago, Jesus started an empire that was built on love. And even to this day, millions will die for him. Who can doubt the veracity of these words? The great military leaders of the past have gone and their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes. But the empire of Jesus, built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love, is still growing. It started with a small group of dedicated men who, through the inspiration of their Lord, were able to shake the hinges, ...from the gates of the Roman Empire and carry the gospel into all the world. That's an amazing statement. Jesus is, you know, we usually think of Jesus, we compare him to like other religious spiritual leaders like Buddha. We don't compare Jesus to Caesar or to Charlemagne or to Napoleon and say who's built a a greater kingdom. And so what that tells us is that believing in Jesus says I'm a part of a political revolution following Jesus as king. And let me give you another example. where This is a powerful application of this. In the 1930s, when the Nazis came to power, the Nazis had a huge influence on the German church and convinced the German church to uh, buy into their their nationalism and their anti-Semitism. And there was an ecumenical group of Christians in Germany who uh, began what was called the Confessing Church, the Confessing Movement. And they wrote a, a confession called the Barman Declaration, which was their statement against the Nazis and against the church. And, and the main point of the Barman Declaration was Jesus Christ is the Lord, which we all hear is like a spiritual religious kind of thing. No, they were saying Jesus Christ is Lord and Hitler is not. And many that were a part of the confessing movement were a part of the resistance against, uh, against Hitler because they're spiritual allegiance to Jesus was a political allegiance. This is the kingdom that we are loyal to. And so the cross is not some event that simply gets us away from the world to heaven. It is the central event in human history through which the king, this is what Revelation says, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That is what the revolution is about. Now this text that we're looking at shows us the very heart of Jesus' kingdom that he is building, the empire that he is building. And you can see it in those words in verse 48. Look at what it says. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus and at once said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Jesus called his betrayer his friend. And what Martin Luther King also says in Strength to Love is, is that is the power of Jesus' kingdom, is that he defeats his enemies not by killing them, but by transforming them into friends. That's what the cross did. Is, and that's all of us. We were all hostile to God. We wanted to be our own gods and live our own lives and f- follow after our sins and our own passions. We were hostile to God and Jesus has won us and made us God's friends. That's how he's conquered us. It was not with a sword. It was with love. This is not some cute little truism. Napoleon says that Jesus has millions of people in every nation right now willing to die for him. He never, Napoleon never had anything close to that kind of loyalty. He never conquered a kingdom, never even close to that, let alone something that was that enduring. That is what the gospel is about. That's a revolution that we're part of. Now, this raises a question, though. You say, well, you know, how, how can you call an enemy a friend? Many of you have enemies in your life right now, people that are hurting you. How can you love the violent? Well, this is the last point that I want to draw out. So first, nonviolence brings light. It exposes the violence. Okay? It is not, it's not just uh, letting violence go. It is speaking the truth in love. And second, nonviolence leads to a revolution. It has and is transforming the world right now. The cross is doing that. But the last truth is that nonviolence looks to God's violence. The way to live a nonviolent life is to look to God as the only one who is allowed to be violent. An important aspect of this passage is Jesus statement verse 53. Look at what it says. Do you not think or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Now, what Jesus is alluding to there in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Lord of Hosts. Right? The Lord of armies. And the picture of the Old Testament is that God is this God who has all of these armies... ...who can destroy his enemies. I think many people in our culture say, you know, I, I'm not into the God of armies. Like, that doesn't warm my heart. I don't get inspiration and positive thoughts from thinking about the God of armies. Um, but uh, the Bible says that the only way you can become a person of nonviolence... ...is if you know that violence belongs to God alone. And actually in First Peter... Jesus' best friend, who's uh, in, at this scene, reflects on Jesus' death on the cross. And, uh, and he says, you know, Jesus, when he was threatened, he did not threaten back. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. And he says, well, how did Jesus do it? This is what he says. That Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He entrusted him. He believed that God would vindicate him. And, you know, I'm, I read a book about 10 years ago by a guy named Miroslav Volf. Miroslav Volf is a, Chris, a Croatian Christian thinker who lived through much of the genocide in the 1990s uh, when the Orthodox Christians uh, systematically slaughtered uh, the, the Bosnian uh, Muslims in, uh, in the Balkans, in the, in the Balkan Wars of the 90s. And he was reflecting on it. He's like, man, my, my people are just torn apart. And what does Christianity have to say about how to mend back together these communities. How does forgiveness work? How do you embrace an enemy? How does this cycle of violence not go on and on? And what Wolf says is it's very easy to say in a place like Bellingham, you know, where it's nice and safe, everyone's happy, and we're going hiking, and we're going snowboarding, and we're going, you know, and we're hanging out at woods. It's very easy to say, I just believe in a God of love. I believe in a happy God. But if you live in a war-torn land where your brothers have been murdered, and your sisters have been raped. And someone says, well, just forgive. Just just love. They're going to say, you're kidding yourself. You don't know how bad this violence is. And either God is going to judge the wicked, or I am. And I'm going to pick up my machine gun, and I will go and get justice. And what Wolf says is the only way that we can stop the cycle of violence is if we believe that there is a time coming where God will bring his violence to judge the wicked. But what the cross says is that God is holding his wrath. He's patiently waiting. And in the cross of Jesus, God is revealing to us, he's showing us this is what humanity is. This is our violence. And he's saying he is starting a revolution of love, a revolution of nonviolence. And he's offering to all the violent of the world to come forward, to name their crimes. And the true king of the greatest empire in the world is giving an open offer of pardon to all people everywhere to have their crimes against their fellow humans and against God forgiven and to be c- recruited into his kingdom of love. And he's offering the victims of the world to come and give their allegiance to Jesus and to be healed by him. And so God is slow to anger, he is slow to violence. But there is a day coming when he will set all things right and the violent will give an account for their crimes and the victims will be vindicated and their tears will be wiped away. Nonviolence looks to God's violence and trusts that God alone is the one who can be trusted with violence. So let me end with these words for you. If you are the violent... The cross is calling you into the light. Expose the violence in your life. And that doesn't mean go to God in prayer and tell him. It means you tell people. You publicly, and that may not be in front of a whole community, but you tell others, this is the truth about who I am. The cross is calling us to honesty about our violence. If you are a victim of violence... The cross says that God himself became the victim of violence. To say that God stands with the oppressed. Know that God is with you. He's identified with you. And by coming to him, all of us, as violent and as victims, are swept into this great revolution, the revolution of the cross.